0: Just to recap, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you guys understand the reason why I'm so glad that you're here, right? I'm super grateful that you're here, and now we're going to finish up what to do with your your people, and then we're going to get into a quote-unquote discipleship program that I've run people through, so I'm not, there is going to be some Jesus talked about more in depth, okay? But I want to make sure you guys understand what you're getting yourselves into, like once again, I'm the worst recruiter for Addiction Ministries, because I'm, I'm telling you like it is, what, what you're going to face, Okay? Um, he asks, is, is Fred still alive? I don't know if Fred's still high, alive. He's probably, if he's high, probably not. But, um, I, I don't know. I, I lost contact with Fred. Okay? So treatment, once again, takes, it looks like various different things. And then we come to this word called discipleship. Now, before I get into what I I think discipleship should look like, I'm going to ask you guys this question first. How many of you are actively discipling someone? Raise your hand. Keep it up. How many of you are being discipled by someone? (laughs) Let's do that once again, because I want everyone to see something that is very important. How many of you here are actively discipling someone? Keep it high. Really, really, really high, now, how many of you are still being discipled or someone is discipling you? That is a massive problem. Put your hands down that is a massive problem, and i 'll tell you why. How can you tell someone they need to be discipled if you 're not so So, for those of you who are who are um, brave enough. <laughs> Who had your hand up for discipling someone, then put your hand down? I want to pick on someone. I'm going to pick on. You're new. Where were you earlier? Oh, you're in the back. Okay, I was like, I got a new person here. Your name is, ma'am? Daisy. Daisy. So you're, who are you discipling? Uh, My counselor. Your counselor, okay? Why aren't you being discipled? Uh, I don't know. So if your counselor said Daisy. Should I be discipled by you? You're going to say, yes. Obviously, because you're discipling them. And then they ask you this question, Daisy, who's discipling you? And you say, no one. You better have a better answer than, I don't know. I'm not picking... I'm, I'm, I can pick on a bunch of you guys. Like, only a third of the hands stayed up. So don't think you're scot-free. Daisy, thank you for being honest with us. I, I appreciate that. It took guts. Okay? And once again... I'm just as guilty as you guys of not following, practicing what I preach. Yes, sir. What is your definition of discipling? My definition of discipling is um, consistent communication and being held accountable in a God-honoring way. Oh, God I thought you were talking about a program. Oh, not a program. A person. So ask this question again. All right. Everyone's like, I want to redo on this question. (laughs) I want to pass. Don't worry, I'm not judging. All right, so let's. Redo this. Discipleship to me is someone is investing into your life helping keep you accountable and it can't be your spouse. It, be your spouse. it cannot be your spouse. <laughs> Can we try again? Can we try again? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> can't be your spouse. How many so yes. Oh, I we oh she wants to she, <laughs> she wants <to>, a <laughs> What was your name? Jane. Is that your name? Regine. 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 There's no, there is no gold star for me to give you. Okay. So, (laughs) so let's try this again. Try this one more time. How many of you are investing in someone, right? How many of you have someone investing in you? Good. Good. A lot better. I'm not a fan of programs, by the way, if you haven't figured it out. I'm not a fan of programs. I'll tell you why I'm not a fan of programs. Programs don't save you. Jesus Christ does. Uh, My biggest problem with... You got me on a little tangent here. My biggest problem with CR is this. Or AA or any program. And I've been doing this for a long time. People replace their life-dominating sin with going to a meeting. And when they're struggling... Right? They're struggling. I need to get to a meeting. And I'm like, no idiot, you don't need to get to a meeting. You need to get on your knees and pray. You need to go to the Word. Or the thing that annoys me, the even more than someone saying I need to go to a meeting, is someone says, I need to call my sponsor. And I want to smack that sponsor in the head because I was like, you have not pointed them to Christ, you've pointed them to you. You can't do that. Why? Because you're going to fail. And if you're pointing your, your counselees or your sponsees or your, whoever you're discipling to you, you're doing them a disservice because you're not pointing them to the cross. I, I, like I said, I worked in this field for a long time. In, in California, there was the super sponsor. We'll just call him super sponsor. Like everyone wanted to be sponsored by Jeff. Everyone wanted to. Jeff was like the most charismatic man I've ever met in my life. I've met tons of charismatic people when I worked in the business world. Jeff was by far, hands down, the most charismatic person I ever met. Jeff was sponsoring like 40 guys. 40 guys. He, he, and how did I know Jeff was charismatic? Because he was at one of the, the recovery churches that we went to when I got sober. And I looked up to Jeff and I was like, wow, he's amazing. Because he talked about Jesus, he talked about prayer, but he also talked about A and the steps. But he, he was always there. He was always investing in the guys that he sponsored. And I was like, I want to be sponsored by Jeff. That's what I kept saying. I want to be sponsored by Jeff. I want to be sponsored by Jeff. By God's grace, I was never sponsored by Jeff. Okay? And then when I become a re- recovery pastor, it was at one of the churches that Jeff w- would go to. And then Jeff relapsed. And I got all of Jeff's sponsors guess how many of them stayed sober zero because they said if Jeff can't stay sober how can I stay sober because Jeff never pointed them to the cross a couple years later Jeff, Jeff got a couple years sober under his belt again and then this time Jeff was the one who ran that sober living home that Vanessa was at and when Vanessa died Jeff took it hard he took it really hard a year almost a year to the date of Vanessa's one year um, death, Jeff went down to Mexico and he did enough drugs to kill a town. And once again, I got all of Jeff's sponsees. And not one of them stayed sober. Because once again, all of them said, if Jeff couldn't stay sober, much less live, how can I stay sober? You see, there's a problem in programs because people put their faith and hope into the program and not into Jesus. And that is a Problem. And and here's here's the thing about, it was so sad because Jeff thought no one, Jeff thought everyone blamed him for Vanessa's death. None of us blamed him for his death. Jeff thought no one cared about him and loved him. Jeff's funeral had 5,000 people show up. One of the bigger churches in, in Southern California could not hold how many people came to Jeff's funeral. There was a line out the door. Programs don't save people. Jesus does. So if you came to this addiction talk, like, oh, he's going to give me a program to institute into my church, I'm not. I'm not. And I'll tell you why. Because programs don't save people. The Word of God does. But unfortunately, I'm teaching this addictions class. This is my fifth year running, and someone says, but what if we have people in our church? who just want to meet every week. What are we supposed to give them if you're so anti-AA or anti-CR? So I'm working on a program. But hear me out. You don't need my program. I'll tell you what my program is. It's a daily devotional with a prayer, with a challenge of the day. That's my program. I'm writing a devotional strictly for addicts to challenge them to go to Jesus right and the the topics of this program and sorry i just came up with the topics the other night so i don't have it all memorized and you're not getting a copy of it yet because i don't it's not done but here here's here's what each section is going to be on and my phone is taking first section is the sovereignty of god why why do you think for an addict understanding that why the sovereignty of God is important. Does anyone want to take a guess? Because they need to learn that God is not Santa Claus, but at the same time, God is sovereign over everything. So here are some of the verses that we're that's going to... Exodus 2.11, Exodus 14.12-14, Exodus fourteen fourteen First Chronicles 29.11-12. through 12. Do not write mine down. <laughs> She's like, what? I just wrote down half. And I'll tell you why. Because if you use my verses and your person that you're discipling says, why did you pick that? And i like, because John said so. It carries zero weight. I'm challenging you guys for you to go find the scriptures that God has placed on your heart. Does that make sense? Okay. The next section is going to be on sin, repentance, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. I'll say that again. I'll give you all of these because I want you guys to go find a scripture to invest in people, right? The next one is sin, repentance, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Why is that important? Because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. They're dealing with a life dominating sin, right? Not a substance abuse issue. Now you gotta understand, well, you started with substance abuse when you talk. I vacillate between two different worlds talking about the same topic. So, cut me some, give me some grace, okay? It's a life-dominating sin. It's a sin that dominates someone's life. And the only way to overcome that sin is repentance, which leads to redemption, reconciliation, ultimately restoration. And I know I focus on the restoration part and what I'm doing. Why? Because if I can go from a drug addict who had to go to rehab to teaching at a seminary, that's restoration. And it has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with Jesus. Everything to do with Jesus, and the verses, and some of you are still going to write. Ask for these, so I'll give it to you. anyway. Second Chronicles seven. You can write these down, by the way, just to give you a head start on what I'm trying to accomplish. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, Psalm fifty one ten, Proverbs twenty eight thirteen, and Isaiah fifty three seven. The next one is called transfer. Oh, did you have your hand up? Wait, wait, I you that I have a What's your question? No, mine's, mine's on. It's a question about when you start as a disciple. Sure. Oh, great question. Not going to yep. Going to... Oh, you're going to love my answer then. Okay. <laughs> okay. Remind me. Okay. I did a lot of drugs, so sometimes I. <laughs> and I'm tired. Okay, so my brain not function. Next is transformation. I want to tell, I want to show them that transformation is absolutely possible in Christ. I'm not transforming them to be me, I'm transforming them to be like Jesus. Okay? Next is identity in Christ. And man, I jumped the gun because I was going to ask a question. Usually when I teach this class, I ask someone, who are you? And oftentimes for the first like five, I'm a housewife, I'm a teacher, I'm an accountant, I'm an HR director, blah, 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 blah. The answer I'm looking for, and you're shaking your head, who, what am I looking for? I'm a child of the Most High, I'm a child of God. Their identity has to be in Christ. Their identity cannot be in quote-unquote their disease. Their identity cannot be in their sin. And that's another problem I have with alcoholics. Hi, I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. What are you basically proclaiming? That my sin is my identity. It negates that the power of Christ frees me from that bondage. Right? I never said that. I refused. I was called obstinate, defiant, and egotistical. And I was like, you're probably right. But the reason why I'm not going to say that's who I am, I'm a child of God. That's my identity, right? So identity in Christ. Next is wisdom and discernment. You got to understand that the people who are dealing with drugs and alcohol, we're stupid. We're idiots. If you you look at the book of Proverbs, there's two basic people in Proverbs. What are the two main characters in Proverbs? A wise man and a fool. A wise man and a fool. And if you're struggling with this life-dominating sin of drunkenness or, or drug addiction, guess what you are? You're a fool. Now, I called my guys idiots. And I went to seminary. And I remember asking Dr. Babler, Dr. Babler, I, don't, I use the term idiot. Don't be an idiot. And I was like, can I continue to do that as a biblical counselor? That was my legit question. And he was like, what did Proverbs say about a fool? Or the Proverbs. He's, <laughs> say that again. I like you. I like you a lot. What's your name, ma'am? Elaine? Elaine? I like Elaine. She just said the word I will never say in class. What is it? Stupid. stupid. All right. She said it, not me. You're dealing with stupid people. For so many years of their life, they have proven that they're a fool. So you need to teach them on wisdom. And, and basically this wisdom and discernment um, portion is going to be in one book of the Bible. Does anyone want to guess what book of the Bible I'm going to spend time in? The book of Proverbs. One of the things I make the guys that I disciple do every single day for the first year that they're discipling with me is they're going to read a proverb a day every single day. Every single day. And the first one, what they're going to do is they're going to send me a text message. on So today's today's the 20th. So, well, yesterday was the 19th. So I'm going to show you an example of what I'm talking about. So this is from one of the guys I'm currently discipling. And gosh, I have a lot of text messages in the last 24 hours um when he first so now he's on the second part so he's going to identify a scoffer and whatnot so let's go to an earlier one when he was actually in um, a wise man and a fool so we'll go to september 19th where's his september 19th this is what he said a wise man walks with integrity and he has character along with his knowledge he is slow to anger but quick to keep the lord's commandments he rests in the sanctification that comes from fearing the lord and then he identified what a fool is. And this is what he wrote for, for the 19th of last month. The fool is crooked in speech. He buys friends with his wealth, but they will not last. He is, he is a ruin to his father. His slothfulness will lead him to hunger. And what I'm teaching them is that there is a stark difference between what a wise man does and what a fool does. There's a stark difference, right? So now he's on the second month with me. And the second month, he's going to also identify another person in the book of Proverbs, and that's a scoffer. Right, there 's other individ- there's a scoff or a mocker, right so he he wrote on a scoffer for yesterday for this, this is the nineteenth, and he said, scoffers will be stuck, and it will teach those around them wisdom. They are ready to receive uh, condemnation from their wickedness. the mocker 's witness is worthless, and he mocks justice. their folly brings them to ruin and destruction. It is not fit for them to live in luxury and then he, he goes back to what a wise man does. The wise man will gain knowledge when he is reproved. It is better to be poor with wisdom and integrity. Than to be a scoffer that is rich his righteousness and wisdom causes him to be slow to anger he submits himself to the lord's purposes so imagine what happens if they spend a year reading what a wise man does and what a fool does or what a scoffer does and you're like wow that sounds really good i didn't come up with it pastor robert made me read a proverb a day every day that was his first command when i went to treatment He goes, I want you to spend every day reading a proverb a day. Write down what a wise man does and what a fool does. I did it for six and a half years. Six and a half years, I did this. And then he had, Pastor Robert had me preach at at church and I I talked about this assignment that he made me do. And after church, he said, why are you still, well, first of all, he said, I don't remember giving you that assignment. (laughs) I'm like, I know you did. But anyway, I'm not going to argue. But then his second thing was, why are you still doing it? And I said, Pastor Robert, I'm still doing it because you never told me to stop. No. What you're looking for is someone who's willing to do anything because that's how broken they are. That they're not, you know, whether it's Pastor Robert, David, or um, Ka'ala, they they all said the same thing. What they, they loved working with me is I never asked them why. I just did it. And I just did it because that's how broken I was. I realized that I was a fool. That I was going to take whatever instruction that they gave me. And I tell my boys, the one thing I don't want to hear from you is why. You can ask me, what am I supposed to learn from this? I'll answer that. But don't ask me why, because that why question shows me that you think I'm stupid. No, I'm not stupid. Well, I I am stupid in a lot of things. But when it comes to this, I'm I'm a wise man. And you're coming to me for help. You see, they need to leave their pride at the door. and like, well, you're being prideful, not allowing them to ask why. I'm not being prideful. I have to know what the Word of God says. And I'm not telling them what I think. I'm telling them what the Word of God says. And that is why I can be, quote, unquote, cocky. Because I'm not telling them what I think. I'm pointing them to the Word of God. And if you've studied under Keith, you also know that there's the sufficiency of Scripture is... Relevant for all things, not just some things, but all things, right? And that's what I'm doing. You notice none of the things that I'm saying is this is what I think, right? In regards to discipleship, I'm pointing them to the cross I'm pointing them to scripture. Why? Because that's what saves the, the next part on my list. Is integrity and righteousness? Why am I? Going, why do I want to focus on integrity and righteousness? And the reason why I want to focus on integrity and righteousness is, is, is someone who's dealing with this life dominating said they have no idea what that is. You're dealing with liars. You're dealing with you're dealing with people who are manipulative. You're dealing with people who will take your lunch and not even think twice about it. And you're like you're asking, you're telling me I'm supposed to accept them into my house? Yes. I'm going to ask you this question. What is a life worth? What is a life worth? It's priceless. Life is priceless. You're like, well, they're going to take advantage of me. Yeah, they probably are. They're going to take your lunch and, and not regret it. You're like, how many times am I supposed to let them in? All right, that's your follow-up. Someone asked that question. Huh? How many times are I supposed to let them in? Yeah, I, 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 I'm thinking of one particular guy. His name, his name is John. He was the same as mine. Um, John was one of my boys at the sober living home and he just never got it. He never got it. He always relapsed on alcohol. And I, I took him home. I went, so what I ended up doing is I go to Hawaii, um, for a couple months. I go to, I'd work 30 days straight in California. I go back to Hawaii for a couple of months to, re- to recharge. I, I was doing intensive discipleship out of a sober living home. And that's what I did. Those guys in the sober living home did exactly what I'm telling you guys to do. So I'm someone, I practice what I preach. And I would spend 30 days with them every single day, 24 hours a day. They were my shadow. And I just invested in them invested. and invested. And that's what I was doing. But I said, John, I'll take you home to Hawaii because his parents didn't want him. No sober living home in Southern California would take him. No rehab in Southern California would take him. He was rejected by everyone. No one would take him. And this is my biggest mistake. He was my biggest mistake. Because I left him home with my parents. And I go back to California to help another set of guys. And I come home for two months, work with him. Go back to California, work with another guy for 30 days. And what we ended up finding out was that he was drinking the whole time. He was drinking vodka because you can't really smell vodka. And he was really—I don't know if it's stupid or good or what—but he would—he kept all of his empty vodka bottles in the trunk of his car. And one day, we—my my parents were, were weed whacking the backyard, and my dad found like all these empty vodka bottles on the hill. And we're like is that yours? And it wasn't mine. We know that. I I wasn't a vodka drinker. I was a Jack Daniels drinker. So I'm like, Dad, not mine. If I'm going to drink vodka's bougie. I'm not bougie. I'm going to drink the cheap stuff. And we let him stay. He said, I'm I'm, I'm done, John. I'm I'm good. I'm going to do good. So I stuck around for three months. Made him pee in a cup all the time. After three months, he's good. So guess what I did? I took a guy back to California and did my discipleship thing. Guess what he did when I was gone, the moment I was gone? He drank again. John is... is, Huh? So all these mistakes I'm telling you guys is because that's what I did as well. If John was to call me today and say, hey, John, I want to get sober... Would you take me into your home? I'll tell him yes. I'll tell you why I tell him yes, because John is dead. He committed suicide two, two Christmases ago. That's why I would say yes. I'll do anything to be able to invest in that young man again. I wish I could do everything that I know now. right? Because what you got to understand, when I was in California, I wasn't a biblical counselor, I was an integrationist. I combined cognitive behavioral therapy with Jesus. I did all of that stuff, right? I have 10,000 hours in the field in California. I thought I could mix the two. And obviously I was brutally wrong. I would let John in my house again. But I can't. Um, integrity and righteousness. John was not, he had no integrity, no, he was not righteous at all, but I, I was so opening up my house for him. Why? Because, uh, um, if you're wondering why I do this, why do I sacrifice my Friday nights? Why do I, I, I work with addicts? And why do I do all this stuff? I travel around the world to do these kind of things. Day 37 of my sobriety, I was um, on my sober living, that my transitional living, home that I was at in in Southern California, Newport Beach Recovery Center was what it was called. It was about 7 o'clock at night. I got a phone call from my former roommate. His name is Tate. um, I was too busy watching a movie about magicians or some some stupid thing and pick up my phone. And the next morning, I had a phone call from my sponsor at the time. And he said, hey, just to let you know, um, Tate came down to the rehab center last night. He stuck around for about half an hour. Then he went down to the pier, San Clemente pier, and he cut his wrist and he killed himself. See, when when you work with addicts, if you think it's going to be all sunflowers and roses and, and cookies, it's not. Like I said, I'm a horrible recruiter for addiction stuff. The reality is that unless you point them to the cross, it's pointless. So when I got that phone call from my my sponsor, he was like, "What are you going to do with that information?" And and I was day 37, and the first thing I said out of mouth is, "I'm not going to get high." But I said I'll dedicate the rest of my life helping any family so that they don't have to deal with the suicide like Tate. I'll help it. I'll, I'll I'll sacrifice my time so that one person doesn't have to go through the loss of losing their roommate at day 37. That's why I do what I do. You see, a- addiction kills. Maybe not a physical death, right? But it's definitely a spiritual and emotional death that happens the moment that they relapse, because there's this shame and this guilt that comes upon them, that they don't feel that, that no one's going to love him. That goes to my next point. And the next point is that I'm going to teach them about grace and forgiveness. What is? Does anyone know what the definition of grace is? <clears throat> Unmerited, favor? Unmerited favor of God. I offer unlimited grace because it's only by god's grace that i'm alive today i don't think i'm any better than tate or or my buddy john or vanessa or kyle or reza or colin or ryan i'm going, sorry i'm going through my list that that's on my phone i'm no, I'm no better than nicole it's just by god's grace That I found Jesus and Jesus was going to be my quote-unquote higher power. That I didn't fall for the lie that I needed a higher power. What I needed was Jesus. I didn't fall for the lie that 12 steps were going to save me. I I realized that truth was it's the word of God that's going to save me. I didn't fall for the lie that going to meetings is 90 meetings in 90 days is going to save me. I realized that going to church and having my church community care for me was going to save me. Not everyone has that. And that's what you need to offer them. To teach them that there's grace and forgiveness, that no matter how bad their sin is, no matter how bad that they do, that you remind them that on the cross there was two sinners next to Jesus. One of them mocked him, right? One of them mocked him and said, If you are the son of God, get off the cross. But what did the other thief say to Jesus? You're the Son of God. What did you say? You want to be saved? And what did Jesus say? I'll see you in Paradise. That the moment before this man was dying, no matter how bad a sin that he did, Jesus said, I will see you in heaven today. He couldn't earn his salvation, right? And what you're dealing with when, when you're working with drugs and drugs, drug addicts and alcoholics is they think that they're too dirty, that they're going to hear this often. I'll come to church when I'm better. I'll, I'll come to church. I'll, I'll come to talk to your Jesus when I'm not a smelly alcoholic or a smelly, dirty person. Man, I, I had one pastor's wife one year, and this was <laughs> about John. John was an amazing athlete. John was on our church softball league, and jo- every time John came up, he hit dingers. And you guys saw that little league player? No one? God. He hit homers. Anyway, John literally hit a home run every single time he came up to the plate. So the church wanted him at every single softball game. Like, I think we went undefeated that year. You guys play softball leagues here? No, is it a Hawaii thing? <laughs> I remember going to drop off John, and, and I was going to go to um, my friend's lounge because one of my friends um, he had texted me like, "Hey, I'm thinking of getting sober." He was a bartender; he had to work that night, and so I, I dropped off John, and, and I, um, I I told the people that, "Hey, I'm going down to Tsunami to so go talk to a buddy who wants to get sober," and one of the pastors' wives. Discipleship pastors, wives of all people, said, "Why are you going down to spend time with dirty people?" You know, and, and I remember for a season that when when John was coming to church, for whatever reason, I was doing tons of evangelism to all my um, alcoholic friends who still worked in the the nightclub industry, and they would come to church um, after they finished their shift at four o'clock in the morning, and they would come to church smelling like alcohol. Not looking churchy. You know, some of them had never been in church before. So you had girls coming in short shorts. You know, at least they didn't wear halter tops. I was like, don't wear a halter top. Please. I'm going to get kicked out. And no one would come up and say hi to them because they didn't look the part. They smelled different. You know? And you wonder why they struggle with accepting grace and forgiveness is because oftentimes we don't show them grace and forgiveness. The next one on my list and this is August is uh, discipleship, fellowship and accountability. The importance of being discipled, the importance of having accountability to realize that they can't do this on their own. That they need someone that says when they're doing something stupid, you're an idiot. Stop it. Someone that they trust enough that when you say, when you say, hey, we're going, to spend a, a, we're going to spend a month in Lamentations. You're like, what? <laughs> we now know who reads Lamentations often because it's hard to spend a month in Lamentations, but why? Why do you think I, I brought up Lamentations? What'd you say? Sorrow and, suffering. Sorrow and suffering. That when I say, hey, we're going to spend a month in Lamentations, like, okay, because they trust me. Because they know that I'm going to point them to the cross. I'm not going to point them to me. The importance of discipleship, fellowship, and accountability. And the other reason why I want to teach them about um, account, ac- <laughs> discipleship, fellowship, and accountability is a need to duplicate what I do with them. We're called to make what of all nations? I don't want to sponsor 40 guys. I don't want to disciple 40 guys. I want my guys to disciple guys. I don't want the guys that they disciple to disciple. That's the model, not you. Point them to Jesus. Point them to the Word of God. Right? Next, and this is September, the power of prayer. Why is the power of prayer important? Because like we we lose Fred's example, a lot of people don't know how to pray. We have some young men here who said that their friends say that when they're struggling, they're going to go to Jesus. I guarantee you they have a pretty good prayer life. Is that a fair assumption? Justin, right? Yes. Okay, Justin has a pretty good prayer. Fr- now we're going to go over here. The guys who keep, see, keep saying they need to go to counselors, what's their prayer life look like? Non-existent. The power of prayer. Another question I ask my class. How many of you have prayed for five minutes or more? Just keep your hands up. Five minutes. How many of you ever prayed for five minutes or more? 10, 15, 20, 30, 40. You can put your hands down. And the reason being is when I give this, tell them to pray, they view it as a punishment. We haven't done a good job teaching people the theology of prayer. We go to God... Not because we want something. We go to God because we have to. Because we want to. And you have to change their mentality that when you encourage them, I want you to spend 15 minutes in prayer. Like, Oh man, 15 minutes in prayer? Really? I could be playing Fortnite. Or I could be playing, watching TikTok or whatever it is. Like no, 15 minutes. I think sometimes we don't appreciate the fact that we have the freedom to pray here in America. And we can pray in public or we can pray corporately. I have some of my students one student is uh, right now she's in she's in China and I and she sends out encrypted newsletters and I'm like am I uh, anyway and, and a couple months ago she said yeah I pray for my my pastor because my pastor just got detained we we have this freedom of prayer i think we neglect it a lot okay next is um <laughs> obedience Who wants a gold star? Answer this question. This is an extra credit question I ask my students every single semester. And whoever gets whoever responds, they get one less book brief. So everyone and here's what I realize, they spend so much time focusing on the answers to this question they could have done the book brief. The reward for obedience is obedience. What does that mean? What does it mean? The reward for obedience is obedience. Huh? The more you do it, the more you, do it the, more you the more you want to do it. What else? That's good. That's we're, we're right, Justin. What would you, yeah, you The reward for obedience is obedience. You're not doing it because you expect anything. You're doing it because that's what you're called to do. But see, obedience is hard. Think of a kid, right? who Who? Well, I have a three-year-old. He's horrible at being obedient right now. He's a little sinner in need of a savior, right? He definitely needs Jesus. But are are we being obedient because we expect something back in return? Or are we being obedient because that's what God calls us to do? We live in a culture that you do something expecting something in return. And whoever tells you that being a Christian is easy is lying to you. Right? Being a follower of Christ is hard. So what you're basically needing, what you're basically articulating to someone who's already had a hard life, that just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that things are going to get easier for you. That you're not doing it for some earthly reward. You're doing it because that's what you called you to do. Or you're walking them through, hey, I can, I, I found out at work that if I do this, I can skim five hundred dollars off the top every month, which means I don't have to worry about my rent anymore. How many of you would like an extra two thousand dollars in your pocket every month? We could all—I mean, I could definitely use an extra two thousand a month. But why don't we do it? We, even if you know you're not going to get caught, why wouldn't we do that? Because it's not honoring the Lord, right? The reward for obedience is obedience, not an easier life. The next one is heart issues. So going over heart issues, what I mean by heart issues is is things that the world has given a designation, like depression, anxiety, all of these things. Because here's a here, here's deal, y'all. You're working with someone who's, who's struggling with substance abuse. They're struggling with a bunch of diagnoses. They've been told that they're going to struggle with X, Y, and Z for the rest of their life. What you're doing is you're walking them through that there's biblical hope that's there, right? Anxiety. One, one of the here, here's my one time I'm going to give you scripture verses. So Keith says, "What scripture are you talking about?" I'm going to talk about Philippians four, specifically with anxiety. It's a biblical biblical approach to anxiety, right? That's biblical prayer, biblical thinking, and biblical action. Now the the, the main thing about Philippians four that a lot of People who struggle with with, with addictions, they, they don't understand. Is the part in, in Philippians where the perseverance through prayer and petition with. Thanks. Let me ask you, each and every one of you, this. How many of you thank God for your struggles? Why? You're, I know you're sitting in the back. I know you guys aren't new, but why do we thank God for our struggles? Getting rid of it. And it hit me. It was like, you know, you are suffering right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. But it's a reminder for us in this moment to take how you feel and go out and talk to other people because there's an eternity waiting for other people mm-hmm. who don't know yeah. you. So don't forget. Yeah. in as the suffering, to use it to bring God glory. Yeah. I thank God for my struggles because I realized, absent of Him, I couldn't get through this that my faith hope all to be placed in Him. And it's a constant reminder that I live in a broken world. And we live in a broken world, right? Um, so heart issues, depression, anxiety. And once again, I'm not using the secular definitions. But if you look at the Bible, what are some examples of someone who the world today would, would uh, say that they're suffering from anxiety? What are some biblical figures that... I'm not using the world's definition, right? If the world looked at, oh, they're struggling with anxiety. Anyone think of any names? Elijah. Elijah why? You're right. You're absolutely right. Because he had a great, uh, uh, oh, a wonderful thing that happened to him with the uh, prophets of Baal. Prophets of Baal. Yep. And what happened next? And then he got threatened by Jezebel. And what did he do? And he, ran away. <laughs> he ran away to the desert. Yeah. So he kicked the prophets of Baal's butt. Then he got threatened by Jezebel, and then he he ran away because he was afraid. Anxiety is fear and worry, All right? So let's go to like the uh, the world calls depression. What are some examples of biblical individuals who struggle with the world calls quote unquote depression? Paul. Paul. Someone said it. It's a weeping prophet. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So I'm trying to tell them that you don't have to default to the secular world's definitions of things, right? And that there's biblical hope to help you overcome, okay? And then the last one, December, is making them see the eternal perspective of things. The eternal perspective. We live in a society that we're very short-sighted. We just look at what's right in front of us, right? We're not thinking of the earthly part of it which also encourages them to go and do this word called evangelism. We evangelize the lost and we teach the saved. And why does that? Because it kicks back into to January, right? And in January, talking about the sovereignty of God. You need to train, I am going to say your guy, I believe men counsel men, women counsel women. So if I say your guys, it's because I don't work with women, right? My guys are being taught to evangelize the lost and to teach the saved. Uh, your name again was, I was talking to Skipper, right? Skipper. And we're talking, I was talking to Skipper, he, he was talking about his friend who died. And what was the one thing that you had relief in knowing? Even though he died of alcohol addiction and his problems, I know that he's a believer. I know I will see him again because grace was greater than his addiction. The eternal perspective is, Absolutely important as you work with those who struggle with addictions. Because you're not going to win every battle. You're going to fail a lot. And like a, a baseball player, and by the way, if you're a Rangers fan, I'm sorry, you guys lost tonight. But, uh, yeah, sorry, suffering. Um, <laughs> but a baseball player, if you hit 300, how much money do you make? A lot. Right? And if you're a baseball player, you hit 300. You're making a lot of money. If you bat three hundred working with addicts, you're a rock star. Because what you gotta understand is a lot of people who are dealing with this and coming in for help, they don't actually want help. They're looking for relief. They're looking to just quote unquote feel better. And as you as you deal with meth addicts specifically, they're coming in because they're they're tired of the roof of their mouth being raw. And they're tired of picking at their scabs all the time. They're tired of going three weeks without sleep and hallucinating and hearing voices. They're looking for symptomatic relief or behavioristic relief. They're not actually looking for a heart change. And that's the ultimate goal as you work with those who struggle with, with addictions. Because if you just focus on the behavior, it's, a temp, it's just a short-term change. But if you focus on their heart and you're pointing them to Jesus and you're focusing on that eternal perspective, that their salvation is important, most times, not all the time, but most times what I've seen in my experience, if they truly know who Jesus Christ is and they truly understand the character of God, that God is sovereign, if they truly understand that there's forgiveness and grace, if they truly understand that, that through sin, if you repent, that there's restoration at the end. If you tru- they truly understand all of these God honored honoring principles that are found in the Word of God, the behaviors eventually change. But what comes first, right? The chicken or the egg? Chicken. Chicken. Who says the chicken? Chicken. chicken? Who says the egg? Oh, you? Oh, hand the both oh, up for butt. I don't know which one it is. It's a chicken. Okay. I'm from Hawaii. I don't. We don't have chickens. We eat them. We don't raise them. All right. As you start to minister to these people, I want to remind you that you're not going to bat 1,000. That you might email me. I might, I'll put my email on the board. This is. I'll give you my regular email. Because you never know when you're going to lose a job, right? And I always, I, I always joke in in class that one day I'm going to get fired for what I say, and that's probably true because I have zero filter. It's j o n . o k i n a g a at gmail dot com. And if you guys ever have questions, comments, concerns, on, and we're gonna in about five minutes, I'm going to open up to Q and A to end. I'll help anyone. I'll help anyone. You, you want me to come out and and talk to your pastor? I do it all the time. I'm, I I teach at Southwestern. I do certificate stuff and offer this. And every year I get like fifty requests to talk to a pastor somewhere, and I never say no. I never say no. And the reason being is because I can't do this alone. My my my. my my specialty is addictions. I can't do this alone. I need you guys to be like, I want to help. And I'm never going to tell you. That's maybe the one thing I took away from AA that I appreciate. Never turn down an AA request. And I never turned down a request to help someone who's struggling with addictions. Because that might save another Vanessa from overdosing at one in the morning. It might save um, another Kyle from committing suicide. It might save another Reza from hanging himself. It might save another John from hanging himself. It might save, um, gosh, what's his name? I can see his, Derek, from getting shot in the head on a, on a bad drug deal gone bad. It might save another Nicole, who got married and had three beautiful kids, but her husband was constantly relapsing, and she said, maybe I can just do it one more time. And overdose and leave three beautiful babies behind. The reality is, is addiction kills. And I need your help. I'm going to close with this. And this is where I say that I say stuff that would probably one day get me fired. But I just feel led to say this because I got to say it. If you're a church leader, do not post on social media that you're drinking alcohol. It's going to get me in trouble. And I know that. I say this not from a sin perspective, but from a wisdom perspective. The Bible says nothing about drinking, but the Bible does, does say something about drunkenness. And here, here's how here's, I'm going to close my my talk tonight. Before I open up the q and I'll close it with this. You're working with a drug addict and you come, or someone who struggles with, with drinking. And he sees you posting on social media that you're having a A martini or a glass of wine at a, at a nice five course meal. And don't get me wrong. I get it. You know, having a nice glass of red wine with a steak. I get it. But that individual who struggled with alcohol for the last 20 years comes up to you and asks you this simple question. How come you have freedom in Christ and I don't? And if you can answer that question, keep, I'm not, once again, I'm not telling anyone to not drink. I don't think it's wise, but I'm not, all I'm asking you from someone who works with addicts who have asked me this question. Like they have literally asked me this question because they've seen church leaders post on social media, the cigar with the whiskey or the cigar with the scotch. How come he has freedom in Christ and I don't? And I still have not been able to answer that question. So make my life a little bit easier. Please. Because see, my my people, the ones that I've been called to serve, they're dying every single day. Every single day. I've been sober for 16 years, and this is another question I've been asked. You've been sober for 16 years. Alcohol is never your problem. You're a cocaine addict and and an ecstasy addict. Could you drink? And to be honest, I don't know. Maybe, but I know this, it's not worth the risk for me. John, the young man who lived with my family, he was a drop-dead alcoholic. when I give this speech or I give this talk, if you lose someone, it's not your fault. If you're, if you're a family member and you have a family member, and I'm going to look at one person because only one person has talked to me about an active member in addiction, and she's writing right now. It's not your fault. For Nancy, who had a son who struggled with addiction... It's not your fault. Skipper, for your friend who died, it's not your fault. You see, if you're pointing them to Jesus, that's who their hope and faith is placed in, not you. Okay. Um, I'm going to open it up to eight minutes of questions. And and here's the deal. We end at 8.30, or you guys are free at 8.30. I stay until the last person leaves. At 8.30, I'm going to turn the mic off. Because some people are going to stay late to ask questions that I won't have recorded. So if you want to wait till after 8.30 to ask those questions, I will say I've done these before or I say for two hours after to answer every single person's question. And I'm going to do the same thing for you. But some of you want to go home. So for those of you who want to go home and ask questions, now is your chance to ask seven minutes of questions. Does anyone have a question? Or like, I just want to go home. Yes, sir. Go home. I had one of my buddies, he, he this is a sober living home, where I was at a, on a date of all things at some sushi place in California. He called me, and I could hear him smoking the crack pipe on the other side, and I hung up the phone on him. And he called me back. and He said, I want to talk to you. I was like, are you smoking crack? And he's like, I'm smoking crack. I hung up the phone with him. He knew the girl I was with at that time. So he called her to put me on the phone through her phone. And I was like, are you still smoking crack? He was like, yes. And I hung up the phone, and I turned off both of our phones. He came in, he came back to my sober living home. He didn't talk to me for six months. He hated me for six months. And at one of our house meetings after six months, he goes, I want to thank John for being the first person in my entire life who didn't put up with my junk. He might have used another word. Yeah. And he goes, I want to thank him because he told me I'll talk. And here's my deal. I'll talk to you for five hours on the phone if you haven't picked up a drink or a drug because there's still hope that I can stop you from doing something stupid. But the moment that you enter that in and you're just looking for someone to have a pity party with you, I'm not your guy. But I, I've, I've done a 12-hour, third 13 sentence is what they call them, where you sit with someone until the moment is passed. I've sat in a hotel room with guys for 12 hours until the moment is passed where they didn't want to pick up a drink or a drug. So I have a statement after the question. Yeah. So what you're saying, which I, I agree with. Yeah. Yeah. or willing, right? Your conditions are those three things you said, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to die, you want to know who Jesus is, or you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Those are your conditions, right? Correct. Or you're not high, or you're not... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's, that's a good thing to stick with. So being that said, when is enough? When do when I say you keep inviting back to your home, mm-hmm. if this repeats every year, the exact same thing over, yeah. and, over and over again, how do we change that? Or how do we take up? Them off the list talk to somebody else. Yeah, I've never fired a single guy. Okay. The only way you get fired by me is you don't do your homework. And I didn't fire you. You fired yourself. Okay. All right, so you got to do your homework. You got you to come prepared to, to talk about whatever stuff is. And what I tell them, you have three strikes. I'm a baseball fan. Three strikes in your own. What I mean by that, first time they come, they don't do their homework. They're going to do the homework in front of me. Because they just want to complain about life. No, you're not going to complain about life. You're going to do the homework. And the second time they do it, guess what they're going to do if they don't have their homework? They're going to do their homework. And I tell them one more time and you're done. And the next time someone comes without doing their homework, they're done. But here's the thing. I've never had to do the third strike. They just stopped coming. I didn't fire them. They fired themselves. Does that make sense? Does anyone else have any questions on de- dealing with addictions? And, and obviously some of you might want anonymity or whatever, and I'll stick around and I'll turn off the mic. If no one has anything, I'll, I'm to, anyone else have a question? I'm going to close with this. Those three men saved my life. And one of you might be the next Robert Miller. Someone here might be the next Carlos or Someone else might be the next David Giomi. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. Just do it. Just go serve. Just go help the broken. My, my ministry had a phrase, to love the unlovable and bring hope to the hopeless. Because as you're dealing with those who struggle with, with, with this problem, they have no hope. And no one is loving them. Okay.